theyeshiva.net. Agutavach. L'chaim, everybody. Please join me, say L'chaim. We'll cover this Malava Malka and Fabrengen in honor of Yat Kislev, Yates Kislev. This year, the 250th yard site of the Magad of Mizrich, the Rebbe Reber, Rabbeinu Doiv Ber, who passed away, Yutas Kislev, Tov Kuf Lamed Gimel, 1772. So this is the 250th site, Yutas Kislev, Tov Shinpei Gimel, 2022. And the Chag HaGeula, the Redemption Day of the Balatanya of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, 224 years ago. Tov Kuf Nuntes, 1798. First of all, I want to thank everybody for coming. I want to thank the shul for organizing the beautiful event with a suda, a big meal, and drinks, and food, and a beautiful place, and extraordinary music by Rabbi Brod, and um, arranging the whole thing. I want to thank Rabbi Nachum Shiner, and I want to thank the founders of the shul, Rabbi Leza and Heather Shiner, for uh, making this event, like all the events here in the shul, and the, all, the, all the people involved. So thank you very, very much. I also want to thank special sponsors of this evening's Fabrengen. Number one, dedicated by Sam and Chani Solomon, in loving memory of Sam's father, Rebbe Zil, Ben Reb Yaakov Solomon, who was a master pedagogue, to thousands and thousands of students for a half a century and a pillar of kindness. Also dedicated by our dear friend, Reb Sam is also our dear friend, but another dear friend, Reb Nachum Aaron Litkowski and his family, in loving memory of his father's 53rd yard site on Yutas Kislev, Reb Shimon Ben Reb Yisrael from Samarkand, a grandson, a descendant of Reb Pinchas Koritzer, and his yard site is Yutas Kislev. Third one is dedicated anonymously in appreciation for all the chassidus that was taught and learned this year. Thank you. <laughs> l'chaim, everybody. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim. L'chaim. There's a beautiful letter that the Balatanya wrote to Rebaruchol of Mezhebush. The Rebbe Rebaruchol was a grandson of the Balshemtiv. And when he came out of prison in Petersburg, Petersburg, he wrote a letter to two people, Rebbe Yitzchak Baditchev, who was a close friend of his, they were both students of the Magid, and the Baruchel Mezhebuzher. And he wrote them about the experiences and what happened. It was a very serious arrest. He was arrested, he was arrested with the accusations, under the accusations that he was trying to overthrow the Tsarist government in Russia. And he was accused of treason, to the point that they were afraid there would be capital punishment. And he was arrested after Sukkot, and he was liberated on Yutas Kislev, the 19th of Kislev. So he writes in the letter to the Baruchel Mezhebuzher and Reblev Yitzhak Baditshever, he said that he was sitting in his cell and he was saying Tehillim. And he was holding Kapitel Munhe of Tehillim, chapter 55. And he said, I said the Pasuk, Poda b'shalom nafshi, mikrovli ki b'rabim hoyu imadi. Tavra Melech says, you have liberated my soul in peace from those who declared war against me. Ki all the masses supported me, were together with me. 
It says in Yerushalmi that even Avshalim's people, silently they were davening that David should be victorious. So, so he said, I said this Pasuk, before I began the next Pasuk, Yotzasi b'shalom, me Hashem shalom. I went out in peace with the help of Hashem who's called Shalom Peace. This was his, uh, what he wrote in the letter after the Pasuk Pada B'Shalom. So the Chassidim composed a niggin that they sing every year Yutas Kislev already for hundreds of years on this on these words, Pada B'Shalom Nafshi from Tehillim chapter 55. So I'm going to ask Rabbi Brod to, to do Pada B'Shalom, do it in the right pitch. And whoever knows the words, please sing along. If not, you can open up a Tehillim Kapitel Nunhei and you'll see it's towards the end of the capital, till the end of the capital, and you could sing along. It's a beautiful, beautiful melody that was composed in honor of Yut- Yutes Kislev by the chassidim of that generation.
You did an amazing job. <clears throat> I have a cousin. He lives in Kiryat Malachi in Israel. His name is Rabmatul Garelik. <coughs> he's an architect, he's a contractor, he's a builder. <coughs> he grew up in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. Tashkent, Samarkand. He's a first cousin of my father. My parents left the Soviet Union right after the war, 1946. Many Jewish families got out with forged passports. But many stayed behind. Either they were caught or they couldn't make it. And they stayed there for many more decades. <laughs> his family came out only in the 70s, 1972. Came out with his father, my uncle Fete Mendel, we called him Mendel and Bela Garelik, my great uncle and aunt. The Motel Garelik is my father's first cousin. He once shared a story. You had to go to public school. If you didn't go to public school, you went to Siberia. It wasn't a choice, uh, homeschooling or uh, public school. You, your parents, they went to the Gulag. So they went to public school, but they had tutors in the afternoon, in the evening, early morning. They had tutors who would teach them <coughs> Yiddishkeit. So the Motel said, one day, their class finished, and uh, before they went home, there was a big map. In the hallway, there was a map of Russia, a very big map, and they were searching on the map for a city. Which city were they searching for? Samarkand was a bastion of Chabad Chassidim, who escaped there during the Nazi era. Samarkand had Bukharian Jews, but the Nazis slaughtered Ukrainian Jews, Lithuanian Jews, Jews in Belarus, and part of Russia, so they escaped as far as they can, so they ended up in Samarkand. But many of them, their fathers or grandfathers, learned in the city of Lubavitch, <coughs> which is in Belarus, so they were looking on the map for the city of Lubavitch. They couldn't find it. Their geography teacher, a Russian Gentile, very educated man, walks by and he sees the boys studying the map. He was very proud of himself because it means he's doing a good job, inspiring interest. Imagine kids after class. It's usually you should go and study the map. It's enough. It's enough what you have to do in school. So he was so proud of himself how much interest he created in them for geography. He loved geography. So he goes over you know, makes a huddle with them, and he says, what are you guys searching for? They said, we're searching for an incredible city that we heard so much about, Lubavitch, and we can't find it to our dismay. So he says, this is a map, but it's a general map. In my office, I have an atlas, a detailed atlas of every neighborhood, every region, every shtetl, every town, every village in Russia. Come to my office. So he says, me and my friends, we go into this fellow's office, and he takes out his atlas, and he searches and searches. There it is. He shows them Lubavitch. And Abmatul says, we were so disappointed, because he 
They said, why is it so tiny? You could barely see it. He says, you have to understand. Moscow, the capital, that's in big. A larger city has big words. Real big cities have a star near them. Smaller cities, the words are smaller. But towns that are very tiny, it's in very, very tiny letters. You should be able to find it. But the space of the city defines how much space it takes up in the atlas. He said, we tell him this is a mistake. From what we heard about Lubavitch, it must be one of the biggest cities in Russia. Something is wrong. Why is it so small? They were little kids. So he thinks, he said, I'll tell you one possibility. The Russians, ever if there's a city with a secret factory producing ammunition or something else that's secretive, they make sure that on the map it should barely be seen. So the enemy shouldn't dedicate any attention to it. So it could be that this city is very big, but it has probably a secret factory. So therefore the Russians uh, made it so small. So they say to him, what type of secret factory? He says, I wouldn't know. You have to ask somebody who was there. So Reb Matul says in Samarkand, there was an old chassid, his name was Reb Mendel Nodl. Reb Mendel Nodl. So he said, from school, we went to the house of Reb Mendel Nodl. We come into him. Reb Mendel Nodl, was a, he, was a, he, he was a student who learned in Lubavitch by the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, Reb Shalom Ber, who founded the yeshiva over there. In Lubavitch, he founded it. In Tess, 1899. So uh, he learned still over there. This was already in the 1960s. This was in the 19th century, the late 1890s. So they went to Reb Mendel. Mendel was an older Jew, and he was sitting in his uh, in his house, his little house that he had in Samarkand. They came in to him. So Mendel asks them in Yiddish, Kinderlach, what's going on? So they say, Mendel, you were in Lubavitch, yeah? He says, of course. I was there many years. Tell us, is there a secret factory in Lubavitch that the government doesn't want anybody to know about? Why do you say that? So they tell him the whole story that the the man there in the map, but the atlas said there must be some secret factory. So he understood what's going on. And he said, yeah, there's a secret factory there. They say to him, were you ever there? He says, I was there for years. He said, what did the factory do? He says, the factory polished diamonds. It took diamonds and it polished them. And it was a very, very significant factory and very expensive because you're polishing diamonds. And could be that why it was that's why it was secret. They say to him, How many times did you visit there? He said, I was there for every day every day for many years. They say to Mendel, I don't understand. Why didn't you take with you some diamonds from the factory? And now instead of all of us living in such poverty, we would be much richer. So my cousin, Reb Matul, says, Reb Mendel started to cry. And he said, He said, I was a young boy, and I didn't appreciate the preciousness of the diamonds, so I didn't take any with me. That's what Reb Matul said, the story, when they were children in Samarkand. <clears throat> and I thought about it, because in many ways, Yutis Kislev 
the teachings of the Balshemtiv, the teachings of the Balatanya and their students, the Balshemtiv students, the Balatanya students, the Magad and his students. What does it really try to achieve? One of the things, among others, is the real truth and the belief in the diamond that exists in every person. That every person is a diamond. But it could be a little dusty, it could be a little rusty, it could be a little moldy. So it needs to be polished. Rebaruchel of Mezhebush, I mentioned him earlier, he writes in a sefer, Butzina de Nehoira. So he says, we say in Ashrei, Lohidia Livneya Adam Gvoroisov, Uchvoid Hadar Malchusoy. So he says, what does that mean? Literally it means that Hashem wanted to notify people about his strength. So he says, the word Lohidia is a very interesting, it's a strange term in Tanakh. To notify, Lohidia Livneya Adam. So the Baruch of Mezhebush says it has also another meaning, a homiletical meaning. It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to notify people, to notify every person about Gvuraisov, about his strength. To notify him about the glory and the beauty of his nobility, of his royalty, of aristocracy, of his dignity. It's a mitzvah. He says, a mitzvah. Every person you meet... You should let them know. You should allow a person to know who they are, what they are. You should appreciate who they really are. A priceless, divine, infinite diamond. A reflection of the Ein Saif of Hashem in this world. So Hashem should help that every one of us, those who learn Chesedus, those who will start learning Chesedus after the Fabrengen, should really be able to internalize this this awareness, not just in the brain, but in the body, in the body, viscerally, a person to understand that you're never just a victim or a shmata or just responding to circumstances, but so somebody asked me, how could your Baruch say this? It's contradictory to what it means. It means to let people know about Hashem's strength. He completely distorts it. So I said, no, you're not getting the whole point. You're missing the whole point. <laughs> Look at what the Apostle says. <laughs> they speak about the glory of your Malchus. <laughs> about your strength. They'll talk. <laughs> to let people know. <laughs> it's actually a, a question and an answer. Why is it so important to talk so much about Hashem's glory? Every day, a whole we don't stop praising, extolling the greatness of Hashem. Every chapter, every chapter, hallelujah, another hallelujah, another hallelujah, another hallelujah. And when you're finished, finally, and now you think we're done. When are you starting? Obviously, he doesn't need so many compliments from millions of people every day. Why? So the Baruch of Majibur is answering. It's to let a person know who he or she is. Because since every soul, like it says in Tanya, is a chelik mal mamish. So when you talk about Hashem's infinity, you're talking about your infinity. You're talking about who you are. 
When you talk about Hashem's greatness, Hashem's truth, Hashem's infinity, you're describing yourself because you're part of Hashem. You're a derivative of infinite consciousness. You're a manifestation of His glory in this world. When a person is really aware of this, so their whole approach to life is different. Your approach even to your challenges, to your difficulties, it creates, it creates a shift. But to internalize it, this lahidia, the word haidia comes from the word das. Das is not just knowledge, it's connection. Adam was connected to chava. Das is not just knowledge like a computer. Cerebral knowledge. That's not das. Chachma bin and then das. What's das? Das is it's internalized. It's deep, deeply connected to me because there's self-awareness involved. So lahidia, you should be able to connect to it. Then you can feel it. So lachaim, I want to bless everybody and myself. Should be a year lahidia Person should truly appreciate that you could walk in every day to a factory that polishes diamonds. We all need that factory. <laughs> and it's not any more secretive. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim. Zok l'chaim, zok l'chaim. Ach le'lekim, doimi nafshi.
פשוט.
Palatas, of Palatas. There's a very strange and enigmatic medrash on Parshas Vayeshev, which is this week, the week of Yutas Kislev. It's in Yalkut Shemoyni in Rus, Remez Tofresh Dalad, I think. Amr Yitzchak, said, Ilu Hoyo Yodeya Reuven. Reuven knew that one day the Torah would write about him, Vayishma Reuven Vayatzileyu Miyadam. Reuven heard what the brothers want to do when Yosef was approaching the brothers in Doisa. And they said, let's kill him, throw him into one of the pits, one of the cisterns, and we'll say that a wild beast eliminated him. And that way nobody will know we did it. And we'll just get rid of him. So Reuven turned to his brothers and it says, He saved him. He said, don't kill him. Throw him into a pit. And his intention was he would take him out and bring him back to his father. At the end, of course, they sat down to eat, and Reuven went away, and they sold him into slavery. When Reuven came back, he was gone. So the Yitzchak says in the Medrash, if Reuven would have known that three and a half thousand years later, we would be sitting here and quoting this Pasuk, Vayishma Reuven Vayatzileyum he would have never allowed this. He would have taken Yosef, put him, in his, put him on his shoulder, and bring him back to his father. But Reuven didn't know that there's a silent photographer there. He didn't know that Hashem is taking a picture, yeah, and one day it's going to go on a WhatsApp, and it's going to go viral, and it's going to be there in the Hebrew Bible, So he did it a halfway. Instead of killing him, they threw him into a pit full of scorpions and snakes. If only he would have known. Then he continues, If Aaron would have known that one day the Torah would write, and Hashem told Moshe that your brother Aaron is going to come greet you when you come to Mitzrayim to redeem the people. He's going to be happy in his heart. If he would have known that, he wouldn't go to greet him as Oistam. He would take a whole symphony. He would come out with drums and with tambourines. But he didn't know it's going to be written. He thought he's doing his own thing. So he just came out to greet him. He didn't take out the drums and the tambourines. Medrash continues. If Boyas would have known that one day there's going to be a Tanakh, and Shmuel Anovi is going to write a Sefer Rus, and over there he's going to write, Vayitzpoit Lo Kelly. There was a poor woman, Rus, a convert from Moab, and she had no food, and she came to Boyas's field to collect the leftovers, the leket, the shikha, the peya. And Boyaz was gracious to her, and he gave her some roasted grain, right? It's like a candy, giving a roasted grain. If he would have known that it's going to be written up, he would give her a steak, rib steak. He would give her ungestopte gens, ungestopte, nicht gens, ungestopte agolim, ungestopte behemoths. He would give her azoi, the best of the best, creme de la creme. But he didn't know it's going to be written. <laughs> he didn't know that one day people are going to say that he fed her. So he gave her some grain. That's what the Medrash says. When you read the Medrash, it's a little strange. It's almost like the Medrash is saying what they needed was they needed the picture. They needed the journalist there. They needed the PR. If they knew 
there was a fellow, Oscar Wilde, he once said, the best feeling in the world is to do something anonymously and then have somebody find out. <laughs> right? You know that feeling, right? You do it anonymously, you know, when they say anonymously, but somebody finds out. It's the best feeling in the world. It seems like that to save your brother, you don't really need a photographer. So if Reuven would have known, ah, then he would have done it. If Aaron would have known, if Boyas would have known, I don't understand. You're talking about big, great people. I understand somebody, the whole thing is public relations. You take a picture for PR. If it's going viral, then you do it. If not, it's not Kedai. What's Pshat in the Medrash? So the Alshech, Reb Moshe Alshech, in his commentary, and I saw something similar in the Chidusha Harim also, the first Gary Rebbe, the Harim also says something similar. He says something very powerful. It's not that they needed the attention, the validation, the PR, and if not, they weren't motivated. It's that they all had an inner fear. They did something tremendous, but they had a fear to go to the end. They were ambivalent. They got stuck. Because of that, they stopped in the middle. Why? Reuven thought, maybe my brothers are right. Maybe they're all right. They all want to kill Yosef. Maybe they have a point. Maybe I'm wrong. He was a humble man. All my brothers are wrong. I'm the only normal one. It's not so simple. And if I save him, what are they going to say? They're going to say, you're just doing it to protect your skin because your father's going to blame you because you're the oldest. So the oldest gets the blame, right? Anybody here who's an oldest in the family, you carry the burden. So you're just doing it for self-interest to protect your own skin. He had this ambivalence. So therefore, he went, pirate. let's throw him into the pit. We won't kill him. We'll throw him into the pit. He had good intentions, but he didn't go all the way. Aaron... What would have people said if he would have taken out a choir with dancing? They would have said this is a classic case of Hanifa flattery. Come on, Aaron, you're jealous. This is your baby brother. <laughs> Why is he the leader, not you? You're jealous. You're dying from jealousy. But you know he has the power. So what do you do? You flatter him. You take out a choir as though you're very happy. You're miserable. You wanted the job, Aaron. But you know, under the circumstances, this is what you have to do. This is what people are going to say. So Aaron said, you know what? Let me just go out and greet him. Really, he was authentically happy. But every yachna and the shtetl and the mikveh is going to say, yeah, eh, he has this agenda. Boyas, he would have given her everything, but he was scared they're going to say, he's not doing it for tzedakah. Boyas has other agendas. There's other poor people in there. It's just at all. <laughs> You want poor people? I'll give you Tomche Shabbos as a big list in Munsi. There's plenty of people you can give. What, what are you? What's Rus? There's another agenda here. So therefore, yes, I'll give grain. I'm going to go feed her Michael Malachim. So the Alshech says, they all stopped short because they had this inner fear and inner doubt that cut down their emotion. And they said, let me do it parav. Let me do it in a reserved way. He says, if they would have known how Hashem cherishes what they're doing, how Hashem embraces their intentions, their goodwill, how He appreciates what they're doing here, that would have given them the push, the inspiration, the empowerment to be able to do it all the way. Because people need to be appreciated. Children need to be appreciated. Students need to be appreciated. People need to, they have to know how much they're appreciated, how much God appreciates them, how much the Rebbeinu Shalom appreciates them.
That's what actually makes powerful people, it makes powerful leaders, when they know how significant, how valuable, how meaningful their idealism is, their goodness is, their good desires are. Reuven in his kishkas knew that he has to save Yosef. But his mind played games. Aaron enthusiastically wanted to embrace Moshe and give him the empowerment he needed. He knew that Moshe didn't want to do the job. He needed the empowerment. Boaz wanted to go all the way. He knew that Ruth deserved it and needed the chizuk and the inspiration for her Naomi. But the voices of fear cripple people. They paralyze people. If they would know that Hashem, the creator of the world, would say, even what you did a little bit, I noticed. I noticed. That would have given him the push. That would have given Aaron the push. Would have given Boyaz the push. We see it in people all the time. You know, I see it in myself. I see it in others. Some of you probably relate to it. You're scared to go till the end. You're scared to give a hug all the way. They're going to say, I'm a sugar nah, you're too emotional. You're scared to give love all the way. You're not rational. What's going on with you? What's the agenda here? You're scared to give, to show up to life with your full passion, with your full presence. This one is going to want to know what, you, what you're taking. Yeah. What happened to you? What's wrong? Maybe you need therapy. Maybe you need different vitamins. Right? All these things. So naturally I say, me, Ani, who am I? Well, well, I have to show up. I have to be the one. There's other people. I'll just do my little thing. And what happens? You cripple yourself. You cripple yourself. You don't go all the way. They would have known. The Medrash continues. In the past, a person did a mitzvah, and the Navi, the prophet, wrote it. Moshe Rabbeinu or Shmuel HaNavi. Aaron and Reuven was written by Moshe, because he wrote the Sefer Torah. Rus was written by Shmuel, the Gemara says about Abbas. He says, and now when people do something, who writes it? So the Medrash continues, Elio writes it, Mashiach writes it, and Hashem signs it. Shenemar, oz nidburu yire Hashem ishal reyehu, vayakshev Hashem vayishma, vayikosav zayis l'sefer l'zikaren l'zdire Hashem alachay shvishma. That's what the Medrash says. What's the Medrash saying? This is a story about the past. But in Torah, there's no stories about the past. It's a blueprint for life. So what's with us? Reuven, it was noticed. Boyas, it was noticed. Aaron, it was noticed. Hashem noticed it. What about me? What about you? Does anybody notice? So he says, Elio and Mashiach, write down the story. And Hashem signs it. What's the point of the Medrash? Don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake that some of our great forefathers made, of saying, I know it's right, but who am I? What am I? And therefore, everything is pariv, everything is mitigated, everything is diluted, everything is reserved. That way, nobody will criticize me, nobody will make a comment, nobody will accuse, nobody will say anything. You know, when you do something, there's always somebody who has comments, especially in today's world where you could write comments anonymously. So they could write 400 comments about you anonymously, right? <laughs> so people, if you're reserved, if you're part of, you're not fleshiks, you're not milchiks, you play it safe. But the truth is that a person has to know, as it says in Prikayovus, 
ואוזן שמאס, וכל מעשיך בספר נכתובים. All your deeds are written down in a book. Some people understand it as negative. Like everything I do, somebody writes down, and I'm going to get punished. But it really has the opposite meaning. I want you to understand what it means. You know how mothers, when their first baby is born, they keep a journal, and every time the baby develops, they write down. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? You were sleeping, Michel Smeisser. So I'll tell you. When you're... Once they hit five, six, seven children, that's too stressful already. There's no journals anymore. Now you're just trying to keep your head above water. But the first child, the second child, you will find is a notebook, yeah? He turned over. And every detail, how he turned over, yeah? how, everything, yeah? You went to the store and he made a comment, the cutest comment in the world. Everything, why, why is she writing it down? The answer is, she's so in love with this baby, she's so enamored, Every little move he makes, right? Every breath he takes, every nekuda, every gesture, it's written down. It's transcribed. That's pshat. V'chol ma'asecha b'sefer nechtavim. Hashem is like that mother. He has a journal. You saw what my ankle did. You saw, ah, v'yishma ruvim v'yatzileyem yadam. Everything. It's like celebration. The Balatanya writes in chapter 41 in Tanya, they made a nice song from it, so maybe you know it from the Nigan. Somebody told me that they played the Nigan for Abchaim Kanevsky. <laughs> He said, Sinishtin Bavli, Sinishtin Yerushalmi, Sinishtin Zoya, Sinishtin Ramam, where is this nigan from? It's from Tanya. So in Pedic Mamalev, the Otsalter Rebbe is saying, Hashem is standing over you. His, his glory fills the whole world, but He's standing over you and looking and examining the kidneys and the heart, how you're serving Hashem. So some people take it completely the wrong way. It's like, uh, don't think you're escaping me. <laughs> I'm here, don't run away, don't think you're running, don't think I'm here, and I'm going to get you. It's a complete misunderstanding of his point. His point is that your biggest fan in the world is Hashem, cheering you on. Not just to the outside, also the inside. He knows also every struggle. He knows every fear. He's cheering you on, needs of a love. You say, but there's a big world to worry. I know there's a big world to worry about, but I care about you. I care about you. And when a person understands that about themselves, it gives you a different type of push. It gives you a different type, a different type of motivation. The Medrash is saying, Reuven and Aaron and Boyaz had to know the value of their intentions and the significance even of the little thoughts and words and actions. Reuven couldn't know, Aaron couldn't know, Boyas couldn't know. Because, how could they know? It was written only later. We also don't know, because we don't know how the stories of our lives are going to be written. All we can do is live our lives, not write the story of our lives. But when we appreciate the truth, then it allows us to take our intentions and turn them into actions. And the person you could become becomes the person you are. L'chaim, 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 l'chaim. L'chaim.
We gather here tonight, Sudas Malav Malka, Motza Shabbos Parshas Vayishlach, in honor of Yutas Kislev, to connect to the Torah, to the Oyer of the Balatanya. I would like to share with the Oilam a Yesoid in Lakute Torah Parshas Bolak. Now, I'm definitely intimidated sitting next to Rabbi Jacobson saying over Lakuti Torah. One line could be a two, three hour shear, but I'll try. It's the Chfart Yutes Kislev, and we all want to connect. So I'm asking Bechila. I'm just uh, trying to shear with the Olam, and if I don't say it over right, Rabbi Jacobson will correct me. It's in Parsha's Bolok, but it's on a Pasuk of this week's Parsha. The Pasuk says, after the fight, the Machloikis, between Yaakov Avinu and the Malach, so Yaakov Avinu won, the Malach asked Yaakov, what's your name? He said, Yaakov. And the Malach told him, Vayoymer, the Lashon HaPasuk, Lo Yaakov Yeyomer Oyed Shimchakim Yisrael, the Malach changed his name to Yisrael. Kisarisa Malachim, you fought with a Malach and you won. This interesting Gemara, the Gemara in the end of the first parak of Brachas, the Gemara says, there were others that their name was changed as well. Avram Avinu, from Avram to Avram, Sarai to Sara. And the Gemara says that if somebody calls Avram Avinu Avram, Machloikas in the Gemara, you're either a Lav or an Asay, but the name is now Avram, Avram. However, when it comes to Yaakov Avinu, also his name was changed from Yaakov to Yisrael, but the Gemara says that if somebody calls, as we talk a call, we don't say Yisrael Avinu, we call Yaakov from the office Yaakov Avinu, you're not over. The obvious question is, what's the difference between the change, the name change by Avram Avinu, that if somebody calls the old name Avram, he's over on a laver and I say, but when it comes to Yaakov, if you don't go with the new name with Yisrael, you're not over. Could be the simple answer is, I said it over today, Shabbos, so my family was saying by Avram Avinu, the Eivishter changed it here, the Malach changed it. But what's the difference in the name change that by Yaakov we still have the old name? So the Alter Rebbe says on the Kuti Torah Yesoid, I'll try to read a few words also. And this Yesoid I've heard already in the past from Rabbi Jacob some different times throughout the Shurim, Shabbos morning, and even just now in Parshas Noyach, maybe we'll get to it. But he says that Yaakov Avinu, the name Yaakov, Meloshin Ekev, Ekev, the, the bottom part of a person's body, the low part, and Yisrael, Meloshen Tsar, Meloshen Roish, the head. There's always a challenge in a person's life. How he explains, he says, it's the days of the week. People have challenges. That's the reality. Life is not a, a straight road. These different bumps, that's just the reality of life. And the cha- when the challenge comes, we have to stand up to the challenge. That's Yaakov. And when we stand up to the challenge, that's Yisrael. So he explains and he says that six days of the week, a person, those are the days of challenge. Those are the days of Yaakov. Come Shabbos, Shabbos is Yisrael. It's an easier day. 
The Zoyer says that if a person learns one hour on Shabbos, it's equivalent, I think, to a thousand hours of learning during the week. Shabbos is a person's easier, these less of these bumps, of these challenges. And Mamela from one Shabbos comes after Shabbos the week, we start challenges, comes Shabbos, we get to the higher level, and then from that level, challenges, and we get higher and higher. And he explains, he say, when Zmiris tonight, we don't Chabad, they don't say Zmiris, maybe Matzah Shabbos, but we say, he says, Altira Avdi Yaakov. What's Altira Avdi Yaakov we say? We're saying, we're being mispalul, don't be afraid, Altira Av, don't be afraid that we're coming out of Shabbos with an Hashem Yaseirah, it's a little bit of a, call it a free ride. It's easier on Shabbos. But don't be afraid. It's fine. Yaakov, we're within the challenges. And that's that's what it is. That's what life's here for. Just if I could veer off for a moment in the concept, why taka altira? The Imre'emis asked a question on this Pasuk. That is, Yaakov Avinu's name was changed to Yisrael. Why to Yisrael? Ki sarisa imelaikim. He fought with the Malach. So the Imre Emes asks, his name should have been Vatuchal. He won. Why Yisrael ki sarisa? He fought. The name should have been Vatuchal. That he won the war. Says the Imre Emes. And I'm sure others also say, that we're not here to win the war. We're here to fight the war. The challenges come, and we're here to fight. Kisarisa Yaakov Avinu fought the Malach. My father told me a story that he heard from Shlem Kizvila, B'Shem Reb Shlem Kizvila, to somebody that went over to Reb Shlem Kizvila. He said he has challenges, Yanni Kedusha, and, and he, he has a problem. So Reb Shlem Kizvila said, try to just 10 minutes. In other words, try to... It's not a long term forever to win. Ten minutes. The fighting is what we're here for. Just on the note of the, the part of what the outcome is not our responsibility. In the times of the basis role, the Gary Rebbe, one of his close people were helping him when it came to the time of elections in Eretz role. I don't know, for you, that were there during elections, it's color war, it's a Chalamoy trip, it's Mamish, the flyers, out of hand. And this person was really working hard to help out, that he should be the frumer, should have got the seats. He was working hard, and he tried, and he called day and night. Came the next morning after the elections, and somebody asked him, knew what's the outcome? I guess in those days, you know, you knew the next morning, but they asked him, what's the outcome? Who won? Who matzliach? He said he has no idea. What do you mean no idea? What, what happened? He said, my job was to make sure to put together as much possible to get the seats. What happens? We have to fight. The outcome is beyond Hashem. Anyways, back to what we're saying over from the Balatanya, that these Yaakov and Yisrael, if I understand, saying over correctly, Yisrael is after the fight. Yaakov is throughout the days of the week that we're fighting. So therefore, when it comes to the name of Yaakov, we still have that. That's the tachlis in life. Yaakov and Yisrael. Everything in this world is applicable to Zman, to a person, and to a place. 
We just explained Yaakov and Yisrael Lagabe Dizman, how the Alter Rebbe says Shabbos and during the week. When it comes to person, I think we could clearly all of us say and attest that was Zoycha to have Rabbi Jacobson for exactly this to help out people, everyone in their level and their madrega to be able to overcome the challenges of life. Everybody knows that. Everybody can attest that. The shurim, different levels shurim. These are sheer Tuesday for women. And I guess I hear the feedback and we were trying to figure out the logistics, how they were saying there's no way without the shear and the morning shear and the Shabbos morning shears. Mamash, Oynik Shabbos Kepshutai. Everyone in their level could take and different people take for what they need. I was just Friday in the barber shop. So somebody comes over to me. Ah, from Shiner Shul, Rabbi Jacobson, my friend just spoke to him. He was having challenges in Amuna. He gave him time. So everybody, we could all uh, understand and connect during COVID. I'm not going to go in, but a lot of different uh, helps every challenge in their time. So that's in person. And maybe just to be moist of a drop that when it comes to the place, Baruch Hashem was Zoycha, this place, Beismed Sharchayim. 18 for Shea, which is also a place that, that welcomes and is a place for everybody to grow, to steig, to be able to take the ride and avoid this Hashem. The broch is that we should be zoicha to tzave Yeshua's Yaakov and to be zoicha to the Gula Shleima. Amen.
Thank you so much to Harav Nachum Shiner, the Rosh Hakolel, and the director of the whole shul for your your beautiful and warm words. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do for our whole community. The fifth Chabad Rebbe, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, once said, said, what's the difference between a poor man and a rich man? So you'll say, well, a poor man is broke, <laughs> and a rich man has money. But he said, we know it's not always so that way. Sometimes you have a poor man, he's glad to doing well. Guy comes to Rechayim, if you follow what happens in this rule, yeah? You can make your $5,000 a day. A lot more than a lot of people <laughs> make in their office. The Shevra that come before the sicken already. Yeah, they're healed to the last minion, and then they go to Mincha and Maidiv. It's not a bad. Some people are in a good mood. Yeah, you come home, you do six days a week. around here, right? Plus, you have soup, Bingavra, Lagavra. Somebody brings a cheesecake, you have a cholent, you know how it is. The poor man may actually have a good day, and he actually has a lot of money. And the rich man, we know sometimes. Yeah, maybe he's in a lawsuit, maybe he's in four lawsuits, yeah, he's going bankrupt. So why is he called a rich man and he's called a poor man? So he said, it's not how much money you have, it's the general per self-perception. The rich man, even if he has nothing, he comes into shul, <laughs> why? I'm a rich man. Today I don't have, tomorrow I'll have, next week I'll have, I'll win the case, I'll get better. The poor man, he may have $10,000 cash in his pocket. Comes good. He's a poor man. He's a poor man. Yeah. It's not how much money you have. It's who you are. It's identity. Yeah. <laughs> Yaakov Yisrael. <laughs> Yaakov Yisrael. The Yitzhahara wants a person should feel, it's not no gay how much money you have. I'm a poor man. I'm empty. I'm broke. I'm nothing. That you're not allowed to have. I may not have money today. <laughs> I may be fighting a battle, but the perception has to be, the right perception is, you're a rich man. You're not a poor man. You're a rich man. I told you once the Meister of Reb Chaim Kreisvert, the chief rabbi of, of Antwerp, in Belgium, Antwerpen, was a Yid named Reb Chaim Kreisvert, a colonel of Rocha. He was a Talmud of Yeshivas Chachmi Lublin. He was born in Krakow in 1920. And he once shared the story. <laughs> he said that once... He was a bocher. He was 20 years old, 19 years old, when the Second World War broke out. And he had a visa to go to Eretz Yisrael. Then it was called Palestine. And a Jew came over to him, and he said, I'm not going to get out of here. I'm going to perish. I have, I'm a man of means, and I have a Swiss bank account that I opened up years ago, and it has a crazy amount of money. It's a pity that it should just go to the bank. So take my information before credit cards. This is 1940. Under Nazi-occupied Poland. Take my information. And when you'll find an ear of mine, a Yorish, a relative, give them the information, they should collect the money. Chaim Kreisvit had a good memory. <laughs> so he gave him the numbers of the account and all the passwords at that time. He should be able to retrieve the money. The Chaim was saved. This man perished. 
He said, a quarter of a century passed, around 25 years passed, and he was already the chief rabbi of Antwerp in Belgium. And he was in shul in Antwerp, and he was he finished davening, he was rolling up his tefillin and putting away his talus. And a, a, a schnorrer came in, a Jew collecting money came in, and he was dressed in rags. And he comes over to him, it's duck, it's duck, it's duck. So he says, Shalom Aleichem, Aleichem Shalom, what's your name? He says his name. It rings a bell. It's the same last name, like the Jew, that he met in 1940 in Poland. He, he, the story was completely not relevant till that moment. So he starts asking him questions. Where are you from? Who are you? And he starts having this thought that maybe he's related to him. So how long are you going to be in Antwerp? A few days. So he thinks to himself, good, I could do a little investigation in the meantime. You know, call people, find out who he is. And then he says, where do you stay? He says, I don't have where to stay. He says, where do you eat? He says, "I meal to meal. I come here, I collect money for the next meal, and then I collect money for the next meal. I don't have a place. Literally, a really, really poor, broke man. So he says, okay, I'm glad you're here for a few days. Come back, you know. He does his investigations, and he's convinced that he's from the family. And then when he comes back the next day, he asks him more questions and more questions. He doesn't want to show that there's something suspicious because he doesn't want to create any, you know, any commotion or any expectation that's not real and not, not realistic. But after a few days of investigation, he realizes that he's the son. He was saved and his father perished. He's the son. You can't get a better Yerush. He's literally the son. So after all of his hakiris and drishas, his investigations, he calls him over one day and he says, listen, I have something to tell you. You're not a poor man. You're a very, very rich man. He says, what are you talking about? You're loyeg l'rush. You just want to mock me? Type spas? He says, let me tell you a story. And he tells him the whole story, what his father told him in 1940. And he said, here, here's money to buy a ticket to take a train from Antwerp to Basel, Basel, Switzerland. You'll go, you'll give this information, and you'll retrieve all the money that your father stored in the 1920s and 1930s in the Swiss bank account. Mazel tov, you're a multimillionaire. So the man is looking at him and said, I'm a multimillionaire. I don't know where I'm going to eat supper. I don't have supper. He says, you're a multimillionaire. Take your ticket, go retrieve your money. And he sends him off to Basel, and he gets his money. Chaim Kreisver told the story, and he said, what did I learn from this story? There's a Jew. He's a multimillionaire. He's one of the richest Jews, but in his own mind... He's one of the poorest people in the world. He's dressed in rags, and he feels like a poor person. In reality, he's extremely wealthy. He says, how tragic it is when you have all this wealth, but you're just unaware of it. Yeah. So I thought of the Sturb Chaim, shared the Sturb Chaim Kreisvich, shared the story. But what a lesson in life. Yeah, one of the key teachings of the Balshamtiv, of the Balatanya, of all their students is that your wealth is non-negotiable. It's absolute. But sometimes in my inner system, there's so many wounds, so much self-loathing and negativity. So in my own mind, I have to be dressed in rags and collect for breakfast and lunch and supper. Right? What does Shmuel Anavi tell Shaul? 
Im katoin ata beinecha halay roish la alfi Yisrael ata. In your mind, you're a nobody, but you're a roish la alfi Yisrael. You're a leader. Leich b'kaychacha zevay shaitas Yisrael. Person to be able to be aware, to be aware of their energy, or to be aware of their strength. Sometimes people ask, "What's the impact of learning chesedus? What's the influence of learning chesedus?" I want to tell you a story that happened this past week. For me, it was very telling. It was also sad, but it was also very telling. A person who learns and lives with chesedus wouldn't express himself this way. Some of you may not relate to it. Some of you may also not agree, which is fine. But I think it's important to emphasize. This is a Maise Shai that I know firsthand. There's a French Jew. His name is Nathan Nossen Levy. Nathan Levy. He's a French Jew. He grew up in France. His parents got divorced and he made his mother, gave them a choice to stay in France, to go to Israel. They moved to Israel as kids. He was a very wild, mischievous kid. And thank God somebody got him into martial arts. Tick one do, tick one do. And he learned how to fight, so that also taught him self-control and self-dignity because he was fighting with all the kids. But now he can express it in the right way. He went to Japan to study Judo and Judo. He went to France to study. He, went to, he studied in Israel. He studied in Las Vegas. And he became an incredibly skilled fighter, one of the top martial artists fighters that exist today. A Jewish young man, is he's 31 years old, he's married to a Jewish girl, an Israeli, Nathan Levy. Last Mitzray Shabbos, he had a major fight. It's called the UFSU, the UFC, I think it's called. Uh, you're, a, you're a martial arts, you're a fighter, what's it called, UFC, huh? What? Yeah. UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. That's what it's called, UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. And he fought a very heavy opponent, a very serious opponent. And Nossin won. He defeated him. As they say, he's a very nice man, but he's lethal. <laughs> His punch is lethal. His strength is lethal. He's very powerful. He's, he's, he's trained nine hours a day. As they say. He finished the fight. It was publicized in the whole world. UFC, it's... it's uh, one of the only Jews in history, one of the only Israelis in history who ever fought in the UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. It's basically top martial arts fighters in the world. And he was he, he was victorious. So they interviewed him. And this was an interview that was aired internationally. And they asked him what his opinion is about Kanye West with all of his... Uh, Latest anti-Semitic rhetoric is praising Hitler, so he said, I invite Kanye West to come here. <laughs> let him come here. Let, let me take him on and let's work it out. Okay. You want to talk about Jews? Come here and I'll teach him a lesson about who Jews are. And then he said, I say it to all the anti-Semites. Don't give messages. Come, come here. Come here. I'll take care of you. Come, come. He said, come here, brother. And he said, generally, anybody who's racist and anti-Semitic and bullying other people, don't do it near me because I'm going to find you. And then they said, how do you feel about it? He says, listen, I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. I'm proud that I'm a Jew and I'm going to fight for my people and I'm going to fight for my country. And anybody who threatens Jews and who hates Jews, I will find them 
and I will get him, and you don't start up with the Jewish people. And I feel bad for haters. Life is too short to hate, and people that just spend their whole life hating, and that's all they can do is hate Jews and hate other people. They're bigots. I feel bad for you, but I'm not going to tolerate it. And it was very moving. It was very emotional how this Jew speaks. A friend of his, a friend of his, who's a friend of mine and a close friend of his, sends me a text Friday. Before Shabbos, he sends me a text. And he says, I'm in touch with him. And I told him, I want you to know that all the religious websites, the Jewish religious websites, are all busy with you. Because they all published a story about Nathan Nathan Levy, talking about how he's going to fight for the Jewish people. And Kanye West should meet him, and he'll take care of him, and he'll teach him who Jews are. So he said, I want you to know it's not just the secular you know, world that is praising you, but even the very orthodox Jewish websites all reported your story, and he sent him links of all these uh, the, the, the from websites that posted the video of him talking. And there were a lot of them, you know, all the websites reported, and there's, you know, comments, a lot of comments. So this friend of mine writes back to me. He says, he writes to me. He says, Nathan looked at all the websites. He wanted to see, and, you know, it says access. He doesn't know about the Orthodox world. And he read the comments. And he writes back to this, this, this friend of mine who sent it to me. He sent me a picture. One comment. Only one comment. He says, it's a little sad that all of them call me Chiloni. It's a little sad that all of them call me Chiloni, which means secular. Shabbat Shalom. So I wanted to understand what he meant. Because did they write this? I went, I went. I went, I wanted to understand what he meant. So I checked myself. And I saw the story just tells the stories of the Israeli fighter. But then I saw the comments. In the comments is Gansan Pulpulim. Even though he's secular, he's a Chiloni, he made a Kiddush Hashem. Um, let him stop talking and let him stop embracing Yiddishkeit. Uh, what's this hypocrisy of this Chiloni? Why are you publicizing Chilonim? It's a bad example for our kids. All the different Chachmechelim in their comments explaining it's a good story, it's a bad story, he's good, but still he's a Schos, even though he's Chiloni. And even though this was all, it's a positive story about him, but that touched him. And then I'm thinking to myself, he's a secular Jew. <laughs> he's a secular Jew. I don't understand. He's a secular Jew. So they wrote, Chiloni means secular. Chiloni does it. Chiloni means secular. The word Chayl. Chiloni comes from the word Chayl. That's the term in Israel for secular Jew. So Tam he said, it's sad that they write about me, Chiloni. Yeah, he knows that he doesn't have payas metalanga boy. Doesn't put on a bin the tamst fill in shemushirab and rivet. Get a fill in shemushtashtraimul or a kipasrugam. But that bothered him. And then I realized the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, the Balagula, used to say, "Shma Yisrael." In Yiddish, he would say, "Ayid nishter vil or nishter ken zayin abgeshet for nelakus." A Jew. Not he could, nor can he, really be detached from godliness. Just like I can't decide today that my DNA is of a horse. I'm a horse. I can decide I'm a horse. I can live like, I can behave like a horse. (laughs) But it's not going to help. I'll decide my mother is not my mother. I have a different mother. 
It's who you are. The color of my eyes, the color of my eyes. Nishter ken. Nishter vil. Nishter ken zayin anifrit fenolikos. He doesn't want and he can't. When a person is not toifus, chesidus. So it's possible to have such a conversation on the internet. Because you're not toifus that it's real. What a Jew is. It's, it's, it's lip service. Yeah, he has a pintalayid. Here you see, he's a world-renowned fighter. Money, he's not missing. Fame, he's not missing. <laughs> right? Compliments, he's not missing. He's doing very, very well for himself. What bothers him? What bothers him? That a frumayid calls him a chiloni. Why does that bother him? Why does it bother him? You could say it's objectively true. Here you see what a Jew is. So instead of people realizing this and celebrating it and bringing it out, what do I do? I know how to distance a person and crush a person and alienate a person. What's, 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 here you see practically two hashkafas. There's a hashkafa where religion belongs to the orthodox. And everybody else, at best, if you agree with us, we take you in. And then we give pulpulim and etatim how Jewish you are, how Jewish you're not. Chassidus is Megal, it's the exact opposite. But Jew is a Jew is a Jew. A Jew is a chelikalikamimau. Somebody once asked Alter Rebbe, what's a greater mitzvah? If you know, sometimes you have to weigh between mitzvahs, right? You have to weigh between mitzvahs. What's greater? Avas Hashem or Avas Yisrael? Vahaftas Hashem alakecha, love Hashem. Or love a Jew. What's a greater mitzvah? Like in the balance. So the Alter Rebbe said, listen to his answer. Avas Yisrael is the pirush from Avas Hashem. Avas Yisrael is a commentary on the love of God. What does it mean to love God? It's a pirush. It's like, it's like you say, what's bigger? What's more important? Gemara or Rashi on the Gemara? <laughs> Now, what's bigger? Chumash or Rashi? Gemara or Toysvis? Right? What's more important? Rashi is not competing with the Gemara. Rashi is explaining the Gemara. So, Dr. Rebbe said, Avas Yisrael is a pirush on Avas Hashem. What does it mean you love God? If you love God, you love every Jew. That's what it means to love Hashem. Somebody will tell me, Rabbi Waru, I love you. I hate you kids. <laughs> I'm never going to, I love you, I love you, I hate your kids, I hate your wife, I hate your kids. Do me a favor, that love give to somebody else. Tell Hashem, I love you, your kids, I hate their guts. <laughs> Fakert, it's a pirush, that's what it means, Avas Hashem. Avas Hashem means you love Hashem, so you love the Hashem in every person. You see it in every person. It's not a question of, obviously, every Jew needs to observe Torah and mitzvahs. And obviously a Jew doesn't observe Torah mitzvah, something is missing. But the question is, what's the, what's the default? Where do you go? Is your paradigm shift? You're in, and we have to reveal it. Or the paradigm shift is you're out, and let me find a pill pull to say something nice about you. Now this is even a Jew who grew up without Yiddishkeit, relatively speaking. Now imagine our own children and our own students. When they're made to feel like chilonim. I once saw a letter a Jew wrote to the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the early 1980s. 
He wrote him a nice letter, but he wrote, I have to tell you, Ani Chiloni. <laughs> so they never wrote back to him. He said, I hope you'll forgive me that I disagree with you. See what he wrote. May us, from the moment that Hashem said by Mount Sinai, each one of you is going to be a kingdom of princesses and a sacred nation. There's no reality because Chiloini comes from the word Choyl. And I'm sorry, the creator of the world already testified that you're holy. I'm sorry. Forgive me if I don't agree with you. See, what the Rebbe didn't know that this Jew, his behavior was this. He's talking about the essence. He was saying the truth. You don't need to say this for this. The Rambam and Hilchus Gedershin, Perek Beis, Halach Echav, the last Halach, says famously, right, that if a person, it's a very important Rambam. The Rambam says if there's a husband who's not giving a get to his wife, and halachically you have to force him. The problem is you can't give a get involuntarily. It has to be with Ratzin. Has to be voluntary for it to be kosher. So the Rambam says, You force him until he says, I want. So the Rambam says, It's a joke. He doesn't really want. A second later, he'll tell you, I didn't want. So the Rambam says, It's not true. Since he's a Jew, he really wants, of course he wants to give a get. If that's what Taita says, he wants to Ah, he's screaming, I don't want to give a get. I'm a get refuser. It's because he doesn't know who he is. He was never hijacked by his Yetzirah. He was hijacked by his trauma, by his wounds, by his, by his inner insecurity, by his fears. The monster, the clipper, the shell took over. So he's torturing his wife. Says the Rambam, when you when you force him and he says Roitsani, those words Roitsani is the most authentic thing he said. Even though he says no, because you have to know who he is. You have to know who he is. So this is it's not a subshetl. So the Altadeb put it, he said, You have Avas Hashem, that's Avas Israel. It's a Pirush on Avas Hashem. No such a thing, I love God and I don't have Avas Israel. What type of love of God of us? Who do you love? Some mystical God in heaven? You love Hashem. You love each child of His. You love His imprint in this world. And it extends, not just Avas Yisrael, it extends to love of humanity, love of the world, because it's Hashem's world. I saw what bothered this man. He got world-renowned fame last Mitzvah Shabbos. It bothered him that on some website, which is not the most popular website in the world, trust me, a poor lady gay is laying in us. A poor lady, they don't have nothing better to do. You know what I mean? I'm not going to tell you where they read it, but wherever they read it, it touched, it affected him. It affected, that you see. Why did it affect him? Because Kedusha is wrong. And when it comes to our own children, when there's a parent or a teacher that doesn't have the tools to be able to make everyone feel their holiness, we have to look into the mirror and say, what is triggering me that I am so alienated? Don't project it on the child. I have to go into myself. Some people, love is an abstract word, but it can't be abstract. It has to be real. How do you relate to the child? How do you relate to your child? 
So the Rebbe wrote to this Jew, I'm sorry, I can't accept that you're choil. You're not choil. I understand where you're coming from, but it's not the case. That's what Nathan Levy needed to hear. But if I don't have only the chitzonius of Yiddishkeit, it's about what I look like, what I look like and what I wear, and if I fit in, you're not toifas, the amkus of Kedushas Yisrael, of Kedushas Alakus, of Enoid Malvado. We become judgmental, we become dismissive. And instead of an opportunity to lift up people, I make sure to emphasize how alienated you are. This is one of the tayalas you see when a person learns chesidus and you live with it, you internalize it. Your glasses change. The instinctive response is different. And so even though you're but you made a kiddush Hashem. <laughs> and who do you learn this from? You learn this from the anti-Semites. Kanye West doesn't care what color yarmulke you wear. Trust me. A Schweizer yarmulke, a Breuner yarmulke, a Kippah Sruga, a Zahitl, a Streimel. He, Mamish, doesn't care. <laughs> Why not? Just like the Yamach Shemoynik, whom he's extolling, didn't care. Because they were typhus, they grasped the Kedushas Yisrael, the holiness. It doesn't mean there's no differences of opinions among Jews. It doesn't mean people shouldn't grow and people shouldn't become better. But it's talking about an approach. What's the approach? When I see you, do I celebrate you? Do I see your kedusha, your holiness, your beauty? Or do I have to find pulpulim and shetlach and atatim that I could speak to you? <clears throat> it's a whole different approach. It's a paradigm shift. You have to believe the words of the Altered by Yid, Nishtavil, he knew, he knew what a person is. I'm telling you the truth. Ah, he's screaming, I hate this and I'm leaving. Don't turn trauma into identity. Don't turn trauma into identity. Embrace it, cuddle it. And if you're getting triggered, you have to look in the mirror. You have to look in the mirror. Every parent, every teacher in the world has to know. If I'm in a classroom and a child says something or a student says something and I'm triggered, you cannot educate at that moment. You need to self-regulate. You think you're educating. You're not educating. You are a five-year-old fighting with another five-year-old. You're the five-year-old. It's a serious thing. I'm being a mechanic. You're not being a mechanic. You're in your reptilian brain. A reptile can't educate. Crocodiles were not given the mitzvah of chinuch. You're a crocodile now. I don't have kindness to you. But if you're in a classroom or you're in your house and a child is triggering you, meaning you're feeling not regulated, angry, you cannot educate at that moment because your message is coming from a place you're trying to survive. You're, tra- you're not educating. You're not a pedagogue. So I have to find ways how I could relax and become an educator rather than a katzev, a butcher. And this is a serious thing. Children trigger us. Yeah, especially your teenagers. (laughs) They know how to trigger you, especially one o'clock in the morning when you're exhausted. Right? Like I always say, you know, your daughter, your son comes down, opens the refrigerator one o'clock in the morning, says, Ma, there's nothing to eat in this house. Ah, your refrigerator is stocked for three years till Pesach, Topshin, Peites, and you could feed four countries. There's nothing to eat. You're triggered. 
I'm a teacher in a classroom, first grade, second grade, third grade, high school. And this kid says something, this boy or girl, and I'm triggered. And I'm going to put them in their place. Well, if you're going to put them in their place, you're a two-year-old fighting with a nine-year-old. Two-year-olds are not supposed to be teachers. They're supposed to be playing Lego. So go play Lego. Go home and make Lego. And then come back to teach. People don't realize this. Why? Because if I don't work on myself, religion becomes an external facade. I scream, religion, Torah, mitzvah, Hashem. It's not worked through. And the worst thing is when I don't even know that I have something to work on. You know, there was once uh, at a chasana, there was a batchen. You know what a batchen is? Yeah, uh, a shtickle comedian, right? He makes jokes. It happened to me by that chasana, the Alter Rebbe was there. And the batchen, because it was a family wedding, and the batchen was a chasana of the Balatanya. Now, he couldn't do jokes in front of the Alter Rebbe. If you ever see the Alter Rebbe's picture, you understand it's hard to do batchanas in front of the Alter Rebbe. <laughs> So he took uh, he, he took some drinks. <laughs> he took some drinks so he could <laughs> he could do batchanas. So what did he say? <laughs> so he looks at the Alter Rebbe and he says, "Listen to Aklugayit." He said, "I thought about it a long time and I decided that there's almost no difference between the Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, and me. There's almost no difference. Why?" He says, "Was ich weiß, the Rebbe Whatever I know, the Rebbe also knows. Was the Rebbe nicht? Whatever he doesn't know, I also don't know. So what's the difference? The difference is there's some things was the Rebbe nicht. There's some things that the Rebbe knows, and I don't know. And then he said, but how does that compare to that which is unknowable because it's infinite? And two tears came down from the Alter Rebbe's face when he said, but how does that compare to that which we don't know? Because it's unknowable. As the famous uh, expression of Rabbi Yosef Olboy, the ultimate knowledge is that I don't know. And he started to cry. Because we all know there's things I know. There's things you know. There's things you don't know. But here is the problem. There's things you don't know that you don't know. <laughs> The fact that I don't know, I don't know. But when I don't know that I don't know, when I don't know, that's the worst. If I know that I don't know, there's humility, there's curiosity, find out. Maybe there's another method. The arrogance can drive you crazy. Where's the arrogance from? The lack of self-reflection, of self-awareness. Maybe there's tools you can acquire. Maybe there's people you can call. Maybe there's different methods. Right? The arrogance. Somebody today was in my house, a teacher. So she was telling me about a certain school she teaches in. There was a boy who's challenging. And the teacher, I guess he was at his end wits, as they say. He lost it. So he physically had the boy crawling, physically restraining him. And the boy was crying in the hallway. And uh, she took a video of it, which was good. And uh, the next day she confronted him and she said, you know, what you did was really, really inappropriate. Like you just don't know, you don't know how to deal with children. There's ways of dealing with children. Because the child who's understood is a willing child. Children are not bad children. 
So this person says, look at his behavior today. It's perfect. So she says, you know, a dictator, right? In front of Stalin, everybody behaved. I don't know if you know that in Russia, when Stalin would finish a speech, you applauded, and nobody would stop applauding. Because if you would stop applauding first, you were in Siberia tomorrow, or worse, you were shot. So Stalin was one of the most boring speakers in history. But the applause he got, no speaker in the world gets. Because everybody was scared to be the first one <laughs> to stop applauding. You could watch videos from, it was like a joke of history, but it was yet a joke, he killed 50 million people. So everybody is applauding, and you know, even if your hands are killing, right? It's pikuach nefesh. You don't stop. <laughs> you can see, nobody stopped. From Khrushchev to Beria to all the other terrorists over there, nobody stopped until Stalin finally, after he got what he needed, he told everybody to sit down and he had to stop. When people are intimidated by fear, they behave. So when you have a kid who's seven years old and you're intimidating him, he's also going to behave. He thinks he was a success story. Why? Because the kid doesn't say a word. Of course. You bullied him. You bullied him into fear. Of course he doesn't say a word. <laughs> he thinks it's a lie of how successful he is. This is when I don't know that I don't know. I don't have the humility to really be sensitive to the fact that you have to understand what a child is going through and speak in a way that's going to bring out the best in him because he feels safe and secure and soothed and seeing all the four S's. And then as they grow up, it often continues. And they're sensitive to our facial expressions. They're sensitive to our emotions. They're sensitive to our body language. And then the kid chooses whatever he chooses because of his condition. And now the question is, he's from, he's not from, he's a chiloini, he's not a chiloini. And sometimes Hasidim, in the Hasidic communities where they're supposed to be learning these teachings, and what was the whole revolution of the Baal Shem Tev? Remember, Baal Shem Tev is to be able to see the goodness in people and that Yiddishkeit shouldn't become a religion that's detached from emotions. And it shouldn't be something in which a person becomes judgmental and dismissive. Sometimes we become so stuck in our religiosity. Instead of being religious, it's about religiosity. For me, this was so telling. How do you react to a Jew who gets up in front of a video and says, I'm going to fight for my people? You say, this is Ayid. And when you tell that to him so that tomorrow he can start putting on tefillin, because a Jew puts on tefillin, and a Jew keeps Shabbos, and a Jew learns Torah, and a Jew gives tzedakah. That's how you help a person. That's what you do. For a Jew, that's breathing. Yiddishkeit is, is like the Abakiva says, it's a fish in water. You, you tell a fish, you're not really a fish. You're a fake fish. You're a shakrin. So he runs out of the water. You tell the fish, look what a fish you are. Go more into the water. That's how you motivate a fish. That's how you inspire a fish. So here you see in our days, practically speaking, why it's so important for people, not just to learn intellectually, but to internalize, internalize the, the light of Chassidus, of what the Baal Shem Tev, the Alter Rebbe, their students try to teach, 
that the, the real kedusha of a person, the infinite value of a person, and if I'm not seeing it, if you're triggering me, I respect it. But you have to appreciate your limitations. Know what you don't know. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Svaslo yadati yeshma. L'chayim, l'chayim, l'chayim. Habein yakirli, you know Habein yakirli Ephraim. Let's sing a song dedicated to all of our children, our grandchildren, especially children struggling in their own ways. So Chabad Nigan on the words Habein yakirli Ephraim. Shoshana Musaf.
the meaning of this Pasuk, yeah? My son, the child, Ephraim, is precious to me. Is he not the child with whom I toy, the child who brings me so much delight and ecstasy and pleasure? When I talk about him, when I mention his name, Zohar es it triggers me, it arouses in me the desire to think about him more and more. It's like, I don't want to stop talking about him. I mention his name and Zachir, I want to mention, recall him more and think about him more. Alkein hamu may I lie. Thus my inner intestines are stirred. May I, are the 
kishkes. My inner intestines are stirred, they're aroused. Hamul, hamul may I toward this, to this child. Rachem arachemenu, I'm in love with them. Nu'um Hashem, so says Hashem about his child, about a Jew. That's the meaning of the passage that we say in the Musaf of Rish Hashanah. No, it's not Yeah. Ah? That's good.
Chaim, 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 in Dnepropetrovsk. He ran the, one of the, one of the people who ran the menorah center there. He himself grew up there and he was a Baltruva from there with his wife. And then when the war broke out, they had to escape. So they fled to Israel from the Ukraine. His wife is the principal of the school there, so she continued to be the principal. Half the kids left, half the kids stayed. And to be the principal online, in Israel, they discovered an illness in their child and their daughter, so they came here to Munsi. She's getting her treatments. So I want to wish her a full shleima. Chaya Mushka Bas Rachel. To have a complete and speedy recovery. A full shleima, a full kreva. Lariches Yom Vishanam Toivas. And also a full shleima to their neighbor, Shmuel Ben Bracha Tirza. Also a full shleima, a full kreva. Lariches Yom Vishanam Toivas. Rabbi Nachat, Mikola Yeladim. 
מתוך הרחבת הדעת ומנוכס הנפש ומנוכס הגוף. Time magazine announced that the man of the year is Zelensky. Mashmarishon, Vladimir. Vladimir Zelensky. They choose for every year, huh? Alexander. The Tata, Aviv Shiloh Alexander. Every year they choose the man of the year. So who's the man of the year for 2022? As we go into 2023, Vladimir Zelensky. The president of the Ukraine, a man who stood up to uh, Putin, President Putin in Russia and really galvanized the world against Putin in the war of Russia against Ukraine, which began last February. So they appointed him the man of the year. Zelensky is a Jew, and it's not a small thing because Ukraine... I don't know if there's another country in the world that's saturated with so much Jewish blood like Ukraine. Every centimeter of Ukraine is saturated with Jewish blood. The Baal Shem Tov was born in Ukraine. And one of the Rebbe's once said, the Baal Shem Tov is going to in the Nashatach, Baal Shem Tov was born in a territory that is saturated with Jewish blood of Mesiris Nefesh, especially Ukraine. And he's the leader of Ukraine, and he became the symbol of Ukrainian independence, Ukrainian power, Ukrainian victory. It's very unique, you know, in the world, and he galvanized the world, his courage and his his resilience and his walking around in his clothes, you know, without the tie, like from the trenches, he really created a consciousness that was very powerful. Something that touches me about his story is, I don't know if you know how he became the president of Ukraine. He was a comedian. How does Charlie Chaplin become Winston Churchill? Literally, he was a Charlie Chaplin who turned into a Winston Churchill. doesn't happen usually. What happened? So I don't know if you know this story. He created a series, a comedy series on Rush, on Ukrainian television where he was an actor. And in his acting, he acted as the president of Ukraine. And it was all satire. It was all literally Lutzonis. It was basically showing the corruption of countries and of leaders, and as a comedian, <laughs> he says he once looked at it. So in his comedy show, he plays the president of Ukraine. And I'll tell you what, I beat him, I can close the middle. What is this? This is how Oh. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. So, and he started, and people loved it. He's a very good comedian. In fact, I saw once a Chabad dinner in Ukraine. They invited him as a comedian. <laughs> a dinner needs entertainment. Yeah, you need a psabatchen. So they brought Zelensky a couple of years ago as a comedian. Then he started to get feedback from people, and they said, you know what? You look good as a president. And guess what? He ran in the elections. And he won. He highlighted the corruption, and he won. That's mamish what happened. He didn't grow up. He was a comedian. It was all fake. And he won. And when I was, when I was reading about the story, I remembered a mimer from the Alter Rebbe. So it begins with a mimer, lahoven inyan halavushim. To understand the power of lavushim, to understand the power of garments. And he brings out a fascinating point. I'll say it in my own words. Sometimes you'll have 
two security guards. They both grew up in the same school. They both learned how to be a security guard in the same place. They both learned how to fight, how to be aggressive in the same location. But they end up in two different locations. One is a security guard in a maximum security prison. And one is a security guard in a museum in the Louvre in Paris. 30 years later, they meet. One of them, the language is base, derogatory, and even filthy. And the other one, sophisticated, refined, artistic. What's the difference? The difference is where they hung around. This person was hanging around museum curators, artists, sophisticated people, and the other one was hanging around criminals. So sometimes the outer situation redefines the person. Staltarebbe says, Levushim, the garments, are not just external. On one level, they're external. But on another level, the uniform often has a very deep impact. Just like we know, in therapy and in growth, behavior changes emotions. Sometimes you tell a couple, you should do X, Y, Z, follow this routine. For example, 20 compliments a day for every criticism. You want to criticize, that's fine, but 20 to 1. Yeah, but I don't fit. 20 to 1. And suddenly you see emotions change. Attitudes change. You say, why? It's words. Words are powerful. Oisius, they look like lifeless. They're lifeless, just words. They're empty words. They're not. Sometimes they bypass all the sophistication and they bring out the essence of the soul. That's what Alter Rebbe explains. Oisius are powerful. On one level, they're external. They're called doimim, doimim shebenefesh. Because what are they? They're just empty, dead words. <laughs> but you try it, you see. The words, you say, but I'm not really there. Speak, and it creates a, it creates a new sense, creates a new reality. That's the power of Levushim. Sometimes people say, I'm not there. <laughs> I'm just a comedian. I'm an actor. <laughs> it's fine. Be an actor. And from an actor, you'll become the president. And you'll affect the whole world. That's a very powerful lesson in life. So look, I'm just an actor. I'm not the real thing. You are the real. Every person is real. The connection doesn't have to be created. The connection is innate. There's obstacles. Sometimes the very acting touches on the essence because it's a reflection of the essence. Of course, a person shouldn't remain only as an actor. But the point is that we often judge ourselves and we say, but it's not internal, it's not authentic. Don't underestimate the power of garments. There was a, 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 a Magad in Bnei Brak, Galinsky. He was on Avardekar. He was in Siberia for a few years. So he told the story that when he was in Siberia, he would wake up before dawn to put on tefillin. Yankele Galinsky. And he said that one day he woke up early and he sees another person who also woke up at the same time, a Russian Gentile, and he put on a military uniform. A general's military uniform decorated with many stars and rewards. So he went over to him during the day and he said, what is this? 
So he said, I was a general in the Tsar's army. When the Bolsheviks took over in 1917, there was the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution. After a few years of civil war, the Reds defeated the Whites, and Lenin ultimately became the ruler of the Soviet Union. So I, like many of my colleagues, not only were we dethroned, we became enemies of the state. And they sent me to Siberia. But I must never forget that I'm a general. So every morning before dawn, imagine Agoy, he put on his military general uniform from the Tsar's army, that's from Romanov. Romanov was killed in 1917. This is in the 1930s. He put on his uniform to remember he's not a prisoner in Siberia. He's a general. So he'll say, what, it was the garments. Well, you know you're a prisoner. There's something to it. Levushim have a power. Not because chitzainius itself is good, but chitzainius, externalities, when it connects to the real pnimius, it has a way of bypassing a lot of the mental chatter and touches the core. So you see sometimes you tell a couple, behave this way. This is what you say, this is what you don't say. And it's not real. It literally changes the sensations, the experiences, the emotions. Oisius, go to a place that's deeper than a lot of the mind games that we play with ourselves. So sometimes you say, me, I'm a president, I'm a leader. I've been a garnished, I'm a nobody. Me, I'm Learn from Zelensky, the man of the year. He started off as a comedian. He was making a show. That's all he was doing. The whole definition of a show is that it's fiction. It's not real. And look what happened. From that, somehow, literally from the externalities, it redefined him and he was chosen. He was elected. And he stood up to this uh, tyrant, Putin, and galvanized the whole world. Everyone was surprised. A few days they thought, Putin thought after a few days, Ukraine is finished. I must. And he put up a major fight, and it all started from a comedy show. Sometimes you look in the mirror, you say, I'm also a comedian. I've been angry, so let's. Let's on But sometimes, if you understand the value of the cause, so that can create very deep realities. And then once you're in, you're in. <laughs> He's not anymore a comedian. <laughs> The moment the UN uh, or, or, or Biden, Biden said, Zelensky, I'll get you out of there, yeah? He says, I don't need a flight. What did he say? Huh? You remember what he said? Nobody knows what he said. Huh? I don't need a flight. I need weapons, yeah? I don't need a flight. There was no comedy show anymore. <laughs> the moment he saw what they were doing in Ukraine to the to the hospitals and... and and homes and communities. It wasn't a comedy show anymore. Yeah. So in our life also, it may start off I'm a comedian, but you get your hands wet. You go into the trenches. And suddenly it defines you. You're a different person. You're a different person. You say, but it's not me. I'm external. It's fa- It's not fake. Because everyone is, everyone is authentic. Everyone is connected. L'chaim, <clears throat> l'chaim, l'chaim.
There was an old chassid, his name was Reb Mendel Futafas. So he once told me, Don't be affected by anybody, not even yourself. <laughs> Sometimes the worst critic is yourself. You're a comedian, you're not real, you're external, you're fake. Maybe the Nigun Laachim Charetonov, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah
There's a verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Perikhes. There's a time when Adam rules over Adam for his own detriment. In other words, sometimes there's a time that an Adam rules over another Adam. You control another human being and you think it's for your benefit because I'm controlling you. It's Liralai. It's ultimately causes his defeat. So the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, the Balagula, in Tanya Negeris HaKadosh, Simon Chafhei, brings from Sefer HaGilgulim from the Ariza. That the meaning of this Pasuk is, the Ariza explains, the Alter Rebbe explains it at length over there, that Adam Ba'adam is Kedusha and Klippa. Sometimes there's a time that unholiness apparently rules over the holiness. The Adam Blial, the Adam of Lomaza, the person that's representing the antithesis of holiness, rules Shailat over Adam. And it seems that it's very negative, it's very destructive, but really it's Liraloi. It's ultimately for his detriment. Why? Because in this process, the one who's being rolled over takes out and retrieves a lot that was the holiness that was in the one that was controlling him because their engagement allows him to take out that holiness and then he's gone. 
because nothing could live without the holiness that vivifies it. So when the one who seems to be controlled extracts the sparks of holiness, so it ultimately causes his death, his demise, because there's nothing left. So at the surface, it looks like you're being controlled and being subdued. But in the process, what's really happening is you're subduing the other. But the only way you could subdue the other is by being, so to speak, controlled, because you're under his spell or under his influence, so you're completely entangled and engaged. But in that process, you absorb their energy, and once you absorb their energy and you set yourself free, Liraloi, everything is gone from him because he gave it to you. So what the point the point out that Rebbe makes is that sometimes in life, it looks like you're being controlled, you were abducted, you were taken advantage of, and that's true. And it's a, it seems like a very serious situation. But ultimately, you will end up controlling the situation. A classic example for this is a teaching of Reb Shimshon Astropoler. Shimshon mentioned it in the women's class on Tuesday, Parshas Vayishlach. Shimshon Astropoler was one of the greatest Kabbalists in Poland and Polna. He was a, a unique person. He was sadly killed in the Xeris of Tachvetat in the Chmolonetsky pogroms in Ukraine of 1648-1649. He was murdered in Pulna on Gimel of in, in, in August or July 1648. Rupshim has a safe. It's called Lakuti Shoshanim. Over there he writes something fascinating that when Dina was abducted by Shechem, so if it was just a superficial act that Shechem saw a beautiful girl and he abducted her and he violated her, it would have been over. But you see that Shechem wanted to marry Dina. And not only that, brings out that the most powerful expressions of love you find in the verbiage that's used in the relationship of Shechem to Dina. You don't have such expressions in other marriages, and never mind in other relationships. The Torah uses the expression of dveikus, but tidbak nafshoi bedina bas Yaakov, his nefesh cleave to Dina. The Torah uses the word ava, vayyeh he loved the girl. The Torah uses the word chafetza, ki chafetz bevas Yaakov, he desired he pined for the daughter of Yaakov. Tere uses the word chasheka. Chashka nafshay. His father says, my son's soul craves, pines. Such expressions you don't have. Not only that, the Medrash says that from this story you learn how much God loves the Jewish people. The same expressions. Dveka, chasheka, chafetza, av. Fascinating expressions. So Pshimshan Astropolo explains that in Shechem was embedded the soul of Rabbi Akiva. In the process of journeys of souls, different souls end up in different places. Rabbi Akiva's soul was embedded in Shechem. When Shechem saw Dina, there were two things happening. Shechem liked Dina because Dina was Dina. But Rabbi Akiva really liked Dina. Because Rabbi Akiva felt the inner beauty and holiness of Dina. And he says, 
Shem abducted Dina and they had relations. Not only that, Dina became pregnant. She had a baby from Shem. But in that process, she got something from Shem. She got the soul of Rabbi Akiva. In that process, the soul of Akiva was transmitted from him to her. And the Tribune Shastapola says, that's why right after the story is over, the story is Bereshit chapter 34. Chapter 35, the next scene begins, Vayoymer Elikim El Yaakov, Kum Alei Beis El. Hashem tells Yaakov, come, go up to Beis El. Shemshastapola says, Yaakov, Kum Alei Beis El, the beginning of each word spells out Akiva. Yaakov is Yud, Vayoymer Hashem, Vayoymer Elikim El Yaakov, Yaakov is Yud, Kum is Kuf, Alei is Ayin, Beis, Beis, Kel is Aleph. Spells out Akiva. Why? You have Akiva, now you got to go, you got to move on. <laughs> You're done. You didn't end up in Shechem for, for no reason. It wasn't random. Dina was in the street, she was hijacked, she was abducted, she was violated. There's a whole other story here too. You had to have the soul of, you had to get the soul of Rabbi Akiva. Now make Aliyah, go to Bessel, you have the soul of Rabbi Akiva. And the Pshushan says that's why when Shechem asked to marry Dina, Shechem tells Yaakov, he says, I'll pay anything, whatever you want, I'll pay. Usnuli leisha. Give me the girl as a wife. So he says, Usnuli leisha, the last letters is Hashem's name. Usnu ends with a vav. Li ends with a yud. Hanaira ends with a hey. Leisha ends with a hey. That's yud and hey and vav and hey. Why? Because even though externally he just wanted the girl, really it was the yudke vavke. It was Hashem's name in him, Rabbi Akiva, that was saying, I want Dina. Because Rabbi Akiva wanted Dina. He says, but because it was Shem, there was dissonance. So Hashem's name gets interrupted with an S. The Gemara says, Rabbi Akiva Dorash Esim. Rabbi Akiva expounded the meaning of every S in Torah. He revealed what S is. Because he fixed the S, he showed that the S is not an interruption in Hashem's name. Because it's really the soul of Rabbi Akiva in Shechem. And he says, that's where the Gemara says in Psachim Daf Memtas, Rabbi Akiva told his students, When I was in Amoritz, I used to say, When I was a Gneramis, I said, Give me an Amaretz, give me a Talmud Chachem, give me a Tereska, and I will bite him like a donkey. The Gemara says, Why didn't they say, Why didn't you say, Bite him like a dog? He says, Dogs don't break bones, donkeys break bones. I would break his bones. It's a funny thing to say. So says Rupshim Shazabala, Kshayisi Amaaretz doesn't mean when I was ignorant. It means when I was Amhaaretz, when I was a nation of the world, when I was in Shechem's soul, I said, I'll bite them Kachamar, because my father was Chamar. Shechem was a son of Chamar. He says, I had the Chamar inside of me. I was a donkey, because I was a product of Chamar. And he goes through all the different parts of the story showing that it was a Bekiva's soul. And when Dina was abducted and violated, she also got Rabbi Akiva. So when Shechem was killed, the last sparks of Rabbi Akiva left, and they were liberated, and ultimately Rabbi Akiva emerged in the world. 
I explained Tuesday that Rebekah had 24,000 students, and they were a reincarnation of the 24,000 people in Shechem who got a bris, and they were reincarnated in the tribe of Shimon, and later they were plagued by Shimon and Zimri, and Cosby was a Gilgal of Dina and Shechem, and later it was Rabbi Akiva and his wife, Ternestrophus' wife, it was all connected. So this is all based on the Arizal's teaching, explained in Tanya, It seems like Dina was abducted and controlled, and Shechem was winning, but it's not so simple, something else happened. What does this mean practically in people's lives? So this is a very, very sensitive idea, extremely sensitive. And when you say it, you have to know not to minimize, God forbid, the pain and the deep wound involved. Certain people sitting here, both in the men's section and the women's section, at some point in their life were abducted. They were abducted and they were violated which means somebody literally overpowered them in one way or another way, when they were awake or they were asleep, and did things that were completely inappropriate and sometimes horrific. And 30, 40, 50 years later, they live with the wound. Because when you have touched somebody in this way, the wound that it affects, the wound, the wound is unbelievably powerful. And sometimes it affects the entire trajectory of people's lives. Their whole self-identity is based on that event, especially if it was not just one event, but it was a series of events. Basically, they develop an identity based on that event that is completely alien to who they really are. Whether it's because of terrible, terrible shame, terrible, terrible self-blame, Sometimes a person completely goes into hiding because their self could never emerge because of how embarrassing it is. And they literally become people pleasers. They're just camouflaged. They become comedians or tragic actors, but they're actors. Sometimes what happens is because the pain is so deep, they leave their body. It's too hard for me to be present in the pain. So they become disembodied and they stop feeling emotions. Because if they would feel emotions, they wouldn't be able to tolerate it. So a part of their soul literally leaves their body and the body is, is abused and they shut down. And now years later, they don't have, they don't have regular emotions. They can't emote. They can't. They couldn't afford it. They had to process everything in a cerebral fashion. Because if they would relate to it emotionally, they wouldn't be able to survive. Comes years later, some people don't even know what happened. It was subconscious. The brain is afraid of letting them know that it happened. So the brain relegates it to the subconscious. And the conscious self doesn't know what happened. So they're living their whole life in exile, but they don't even know why. They think it's normal. And then one day Hashem helps and they're ready for it. And they open up to the truth. And it's one of the most painful discoveries that the people who had to protect the most were the people who hurt them most. Either they themselves or they allowed others to hurt them. And the revelation of this is earth-shattering. It destroys people on every level. It already destroyed them. But the awareness just brings up so much pain. But there's one thing I want to say based on this vart of the Tanya. 
And that is as follows. Nobody can ever destroy your soul. It doesn't exist. Nobody. Just like nobody can destroy Hashem, nobody can destroy a person's soul. Nothing. Nobody. They can repress, they can crush, they can stifle, and I may do things to myself in order to survive that are very painful. But your innermost divine core is absolutely whole. Like we once learned in a Maimir from Rosh Hashanah, from the Alter Rebbe, Shiramalas Mimamakim, that Kares, even Kares, is only on the level of Yaakov. On the level of Yisrael, your Echad, Yachid, Umiyuchad, Imashem Yisbarach, Belishum Pirud. That's those are his words. Nothing could, even Kares. Kares means you're cut off. He says, never on Yisrael level. The embodiment could be cut off. I may not consciously experience my relationship, but in Yisrael, which is the core, you're never disconnected. All the joy, all the creativity, all the curiosity, all the charm, all the beauty, all the radiance, all the optimism, all the faith that you had as a newborn child is fully present there. Ah, you don't feel it. You disembodied. You ran away from yourself. You had to. That's true. But never doubt that it's all there. And the coping mechanism is an external facade to protect ourselves. That's one level. But now there's something deeper. And that is, were you controlled or were you not controlled? You say, I was controlled. Somebody literally held down this person. I'm talking about people who are sitting here in this room. Somebody physically restrained this person. Physically or emotionally or psychologically or all three together. And the person was a complete victim. That's true on one level. But now, now that you were Zoycha to learn Chesidus and you were Zoycha to come into the world of the Alter Rebbe, so now it's time for you to be able to open up to a deeper truth. And that is, it wasn't a mistake because you're a tragic personality. It was painful beyond. It changed your whole life, Emes, but it wasn't a mistake. When Dina was hijacked, she got the soul of Rabbi Akiva in the process. It doesn't mean it was easy. It doesn't mean you ask for this. It doesn't mean you send somebody into the lion's den. You don't do that. But it means that Dina at the end of the day wasn't the victim. <laughs> Dina at the end of the day got Rabbi Akiva's soul. It came through a painful engagement. And Shem died in the process. He was killed by Shimon and Levi. But at the end of the day, don't think you're just a passive victim who was used and manipulated by a monster. He's a monster. And he should be behind bars. That's true. Or worse. But he did not define you. Your soul is infinite. An infinite consciousness went down into a very dark place and there's something you got that is unbelievably powerful. Now, couldn't God give it to you in a different way? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I'm laughing. It's not so funny. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why Dina had to go to Shechem to find her Biakiva. She couldn't find her Biakiva in Kailo. <laughs> she couldn't come to 18 Forshe and find her Biakiva here. 
life is very mysterious. It says, Motsasi David Avdi. So the Medrash says, where did I find David? In Zdoim. David was in Zdoim. What's David doing in Zdoim? He couldn't come to Mansi. <laughs> David is in Zdoim. And when Light was together with his daughter, and the seed was passed on to Mayav, Rus, who came from Mayav, that's where David Mashiach was, and that's why David came from Rus. But he found David in Zdoim. You never know where you're going to find Mashiach. Very unexpected places. Unexpected people, unexpected places. That's so when you say he's Chiloni, he's not Chiloni. This is a very superficial way of looking at things. You don't know where you're going to find the ultimate light. So you have to know that even though you were taken advantage of something else happens in the process. You think you were the victim. On a, and it's true. You have to grieve for that. But on a deeper level, you were always a master. Your infinite soul knew that it has the courage to go in to hell. It's a word in the dictionary. I don't use words that are not in the dictionary. And I use that word because that's what it feels like. It went into that place, to the darkness. But it didn't go in as a limited shmata, as a loser. It went in as a chelek, elekam, imal, mamish. The Alter Rebbe says that the shechina went in. You weren't alone. Hashem went into that place. And he didn't get destroyed. He knew this engagement, this connection, on one level, you're being exploited, but it's leraloi. You're taking everything out that you have to take out. And it's giving you and the world something that nobody would have ever had if not for this journey. This doesn't rationalize, it doesn't justify, it doesn't minimize, it doesn't take away the pain, it doesn't justify, it's not the point. But it's a perspective internally that those who are dealing with this need to understand how to look at it from the perspective of Pnimiyas HaTayra. Remember of Pnimiyas HaTayra you went as a channel. You went as a conduit. Yes, as a five-year-old, I didn't know this whole thing. As a six-year-old, you may have not known it. That's true. That's the sadness. Dina was a little girl. But in that very process, you liberated the world. And history will be grateful to you for extracting a light that was trapped. Maybe Rabbi Akiva's light. Maybe another light. Rabbi Akiva, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Pevov, the whole Torah that we have is from Rabbi Akiva. The whole Torah Shabbat Pekos Rabbi Akiva. That was what Dina took out. Practically, it means there's something, something that you took out from there that if you will embrace your own greatness and infinity, you will become not only a powerhouse, but a luminary for the world. You can't bypass the pain. The way out of pain is through pain. I can't skip over the pain and make believe, eh, nothing, not a big deal. That's a mistake. Because if it's not a big deal, it means I wasn't there. If I wasn't there, I also didn't take out the light. 
That's why grief, grieving, and resilience are not a contradiction in Judaism. On the contrary, grieving means that I go into that place and I feel everything I have to feel. And in that process, I find my strength, not by skipping over and bypassing and minimizing and ignoring and repressing, because that comes back to haunt me. But really having the courage to be able to say, Shalat ha'adam ba'adam. You were literally dominated and controlled. And yet, it was l'ra'loi. Because deep, on a deeper level, you were not a victim. You were not a victim. You have to reclaim it that way. You have to reframe the whole experience and say this was a journey. It was a difficult journey. The journey sent me through tunnels and valleys and it sent me through the abyss. And the abyss was a difficult abyss. But now I'm going to reframe it and redefine it. And the greatest example for this is as I mentioned in the class, Yosef married, the Medrash says that Dina's daughter from Shechem was Asnas. And she was sent to Egypt, and Yosef married her. Why did Yosef marry her? Because Yosef had a similar story. Yosef was hijacked, not by Shechem, by his brothers. And he was sold as a slave. And he lost everything, and he was in prison, and he had nothing. He was completely controlled. And yet, what happened by Yosef? It says in Parshas Vayeshev this week, Yosef Yosef was lowered down to Egypt. So it says in Medrash, Hurad has two meanings. From the word Yerida, descendant. It has another meaning from the word Uridu. Hashem told Adam and Chava, Pru Urvu Milu Uridu bidgasayam. Uridu means rule. Like you have in Tehillim. Yifrach biyam of tzadik v'rayv shalom ad bliyareach. V'yerd miyam ad yom. He will rule from sea to sea. V'yosef hurad mitzrayma. Yosef ruled over mitzrayim. Seems strange. He didn't rule. He was lowered to Egypt. Later he became a ruler. It took many years. He was in prison. First he was a slave. Then he was in prison for 12 years. The pshat is, the Yosef Hurad was already Uridu. When Yosef descended into the abyss, he cried, he wept. But somehow he knew that this is not the whole story. I'm just a victim of other people's horrible choices. He felt that somehow this is a, a, a calling, a destiny, a shlichus. And what happens when he meets his brothers and he reveals himself? After 22 years of separation, he says, Don't be depressed, because you didn't sell me. Hashem sent me. You didn't sell me, Hashem sent me. He says three times, Three times. I wasn't sold, I was sent on shlichus. I was a shlich. What's the difference? He completely redefined the story. I was sent to bring life to the world. 
Really? You were sent to bring down Jerusalem. You were sold as a slave. You were accused of everything prohibited. You were thrown into the prison cell. You would have ratted away. There's an expression in English. Sometimes in life you think you were buried. That's what it looks like. The truth is you were planted. (laughs) When you take a seed and you put it in the ground, you're burying it. But you're not burying it, you're planting it. Yosef could have said, I was buried. He was buried. He was put into a boil, not once, but twice. First by his brothers, and the second time by Tifa's wife. Always a boy. He was buried. But he said, I wasn't buried, I was planted. It doesn't mean it's nice to be in a boy. It's not. It doesn't mean it was jolly, it was gewaldic. It was painful. But I wasn't buried, I was planted. Now the bird didn't have water. If a pit doesn't have water, how does it grow? To be planted, you need water. To be buried, you don't need water. But to be planted, you need water. It was buried in by Mayim, it says there was no water. The answer is, right afterwards it says, Yaakov didn't stop crying. He refused to give up on his son. Those tears are what irrigated the cistern, the pit in which Yosef was planted. That's why it says he saw the image of his father in the window. Those were the waters. Those tears was the water. The aluma is the dream of the sheaves, the dream of the growth of the vegetation that was sustained by the tears of Yaakov who didn't give up on his son and ultimately he fed that grain to all of his brothers who were starving and the whole of Egypt. So what does this mean in our life? It means that there's tears of somebody who did not give up on you. Hashem never gave up on you. And when you connected, when you connected Be'emes of Epidemius to the Rebbe, he never gives up. Yaakov Avinu never gives up. So even in the abyss, you could see Yaakov in the window, and it tells you who you are. And then you're not buried, you're planted. So when I look at my life and I say, I was abducted, I was hijacked, I was repressed, I was crushed, I was destroyed, I was violated. There was nothing left of me. All that was left is like the peel of a, of a, of a banana. They took the banana and they left the peel hanging. They left, that's all they left. They left the peel. There was nothing left. I was a shell of a person. And there's a truth to that. So now it's time to go one step deeper and say, On an external level, they left the shell of a person. But deep down, your soul is here. And you're as powerful as ever. And you're as bright as ever. And you should know that they were destroyed in the process. You took out the last things you had to take out. There's nothing left. Because the Nitsutsis were taken out. Why did the Nitsutsis end up there? Why did I need this interaction? That's a good question. But something you had to liberate. And now you have to be liberated. 
You liberated so much. Now you're the last one who has to be liberated and know that you're a liberated person. You're not an enslaved person. The Hebrew understand what I'm talking about or you don't know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a good thing. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, it's also a good thing. <laughs> Depends where you are. Depends what your slichus is. If your mission is to be in one place, then you know what I'm talking about. Then if your mission is to be in a different place, then you don't know what I'm talking about. It's also good. So l'chayim, I want to bless everybody that we should be able to cultivate within ourselves this power, this energy to really be able not only to reclaim your soul and reclaim your energy and reclaim your happiness, and reclaim your creativity, and reclaim your infinity, but much more than that. To be able also to reclaim the violation itself, to be able to reframe that itself, to be able to say, I was subdued on one level, but really I subdued on another level. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim. Sabes l'chaim. You know, nigun yashon.
Oh, oh guys, guys. The mic is still on. Round two. Now the spring begins. Just finish with a story. Bashas. When the Alter Rebbe was in prison, the Balatanya was in prison, so uh, they uh, they sent, I don't know if you ever heard, it's very interesting, they sent a psych, what you would call today a psychologist to go examine and uh, diagnose the Alter Rebbe to find out what type of person he is because there were such serious accusations against him. So... This is before the age of psychology, but they sent what you would call today a psychiatrist, a doctor, a psychologist, a therapist, to try to figure out who he is. So the person was obviously a deep person, an intelligent person, and he visited him in prison. And uh, when he came out, he gave his uh, opinion, and he said that this man is suffering from something. He has a craving that's not satiable. There's something that he wants that he cannot fulfill. It's an insatiable craving. There's some yearning, some chukka, some tzimoy, some thirst he has, and he can't quench it. The prosecution embraced this with tremendous gusto. They said, ah, here it is. They accused Al-Tarebbe that he wants to overthrow the czar. So he said, look, what's the craving that he wants? He wants to be the king of Russia. Now he knows that a Hasidic Rebbe <laughs> is not becoming the Tsar of Russia. So it's a craving, but he can't fulfill it. So this was like fodder for them. This was the best food for them because it proved black and white that this is what the man wants. And that's why he can never fulfill it. Because he's looking for something that he can't fulfill and he knows it. So they asked Al Rebbe. They asked Al Rebbe. They told him what he said and they asked him, What's your feedback? Now you would think he would say, The guy's cuckoo, right? The guy's crazy. Al Rebbe said, It's Emmas. <laughs> it's true. I am craving Malchus, but not, I'm craving royalty but not the royalty of the Tsar. I'm not craving the royalty of the Tsar. I don't need his throne. What I'm looking for is I want to be a conduit for the royalty of infinity, for the royalty of Hashem. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. What I really want is I want to be a conduit for Malchus Dein Saif. What does this mean? Deep down, every person is craving malchus. Nobility, dignity. What's the real nobility you're looking for? You're looking for to be a conduit for malchus dein soif. A conduit for Hashem's royalty to flow through you. And in a way, it's a craving that as much as you want, it's never fully satiable because infinity you could never control. So it's there's always more and more and more. But deep down, dignity is not something that you have to acquire. It's innately part of the person. A person craves malchus. You want to be a melech. You don't want to be a slave. You want to be a melech. You want to be a king. What does it mean you want to be a king? It doesn't mean you need a throne to control people. 
You're looking for real malchus. You're a piece of nobility. So you want to be noble. Because nobility is who you are. So you want to be noble. You want to be royal. You don't want to be a slave to yourself or a slave to others or a slave to your addictions or a slave to your moods. You're looking for malchus. A person wants malchus. That's what Alter Rebbe said. He's looking for malchus. Which malchus? Doesn't need to be the king of Russia. He's looking for real malchus. Malchus de Saif. Every person has that inside of them. You have to know that you have an, a, a deep, deep craving and a yearning, I assume. I think we all have it. For Malchus, a person doesn't want to be a victim. You want to be a master. Nobility speaks to us. Dignity speaks to us. You saw when the Queen of England died in September, everybody was infatuated with her death and her life and her funeral. Why? She didn't have real power. It's a constitutional monarchy. Because somehow Malchus speaks to people. Nobility speaks to people. Why does it speak to people? Because deep down, everyone is a royal. Call Yisrael, the Mishnah says, Call Yisrael b'nei melachim Every Jew is a prince. In Zayar it says, Jews are not only princes, you're the king himself. Eved melech melech, call Yisrael melachim So it speaks to us. Something transcendent, something higher, something deeper. You know deep down you're a king. You want to be a conduit for Malchus. What does it mean practically to be a conduit for Malchus? It means that every single person in their own life never has to surrender to mediocrity and live a life of quiet desperation. But rather, you want to be able to be a conduit for everything, for infinity. You want the Ein Soif to flow through you. Your body, your soul, your Malchus, your Chelekelekami Mal. Your royalty, don't surrender to mediocrity. Don't just be satisfied with uh, with mediocrity, with smallness, with pettiness. Deep down, a person doesn't want pettiness. Why don't you want pettiness? People don't want to be petty because you're a king. A king doesn't like pettiness. You're royalty. But sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to identify. Sometimes there's other voices. So the episode, this person is right. I'm looking for Malchus Dein Saif. And every person, you have to realize that within yourself, that that's really, that's really who you are and that's really you're looking for. And don't allow the circumstances and obstacles of life to kill that in you, to stifle it, to even numb it. Don't do things to numb. You don't want to numb. You don't need to numb. You don't have to be afraid of your pain. Your pain is telling you what you want. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to numb anything. People think they have to numb because they're afraid of their pain. A king is not afraid. You don't have to be afraid of your pain. Your pain is telling you what you're really looking for. People say, I have to do this because I want to numb the pain. Don't numb it. Don't be afraid of it. It's telling you something genuine. Listen to it. Don't numb it. If you numb it, you'll never know who you are and what you're looking for. Listen to it. See what it's telling you. Find out who you are, and you'll see deep down you're looking for Malchus. Deep down you're looking for real attachment with Ein Saif, with infinity. And don't surrender for anything else. So Yutas Kislev is the day, Rosh Hashanah Lechsidus, that empowers the Jew to be able to live your highest self, your noblest self, to be able to cultivate your highest angels, to be able to be a manifestation of the ultimate glory of Hashem that's inside of you. And not just to uh, 
you know, live life in a way that another day goes by, another day goes by, watch things happen, but really make things happen. So I bless all of you and myself and all of us. We should be able to be real conduits for Malchus de Ein Soif. The Malchus of Ein Soif should flow through you, through me, through us, and reveal the Vahoya Hashem Lamelech al Kalaritz in the whole world by Yom Oyiyah Hashem Echad Shmoy Echad. L'chaim, 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 l'chaim. L'chaim, everybody. I want to also use the opportunity to wish her a full shleim at Tehenya. Bas brachet v'ralea. A full shleim and a full kreva. L'mayla m'derech ha-teva. V'toich kalcheli Yisrael and a good yamtif to everybody. May Hashem give us all the strength and the stamina and the energy to be able to to be able to suck the marrow out of the energy of these days and apply it to our lives, be able to really learn chesedus and internalize chesedus and and breathe chesedus and live live chesedus to the point that it transforms us as people and as Jews that we should be able to be conduits for Malchus Dein Soif. Chaim, Chaim, Chaim. Whoever has to make a bracha chreina should make a bracha chreina. Okay, a good tevach, a good tenacht, a good yomtif, shana teiva belimadach siddus, a bedarki achsiddus, tikaseva vasichasema. Slacharaba. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.